Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Bible Reset Podcast. This episode contains the second half of our interview with Dr. Michael Bird about his new book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. If you haven't listened to the first half yet, we'd recommend going back and listening to episode 26, where Michael unpacks tricky topics like biblical inspiration and inerrancy. Today we're going to cover things like the Bible's authority, understanding ancient context, and reading with Jesus at the center of the Bible. So we hope you enjoy it. Here's the second half of our conversation with Dr. Michael Bird. So, so we need to move on to, to chapter three, where you talk about another sticky subject about how the Bible is authoritative, which is another, um, you know, not, not a straightforward proposition, I wouldn't say. Can you, can you give some examples of why that doesn't work? Why kind of a blanket hermeneutic of just read it and do what it says is, uh, pretty much impossible. And and if you did do that, it would be pretty ugly, I would say. So can you, can you talk through that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things we can say there. Uh, I should say, uh, let's, let's deal with one side of the ledger. Um, you know, there, there's that kind of more liberal progressive side, which really, plays loose or can even be contemptuous of biblical authority. I have heard people say that, well, if you treat the Bible as an authority, you've basically created uh, a paper pope. Okay. You know, our authority is not, is not the words of Matthew or Luke, these white heterosexual males. Now our authority is Jesus. Okay. Because we, we want Jesus. We, we don't submit to the authority of, of, you know, the, that, you know, misogynistic homophobe, the apostle Paul, he's not our authority. Jesus is our authority, you know, and, you know, so you you can get people, you know, going to that kind of extreme. So for them, the Bible is not an authority. The Bible, to be honest, is just a plug-in to a few political views that they have, you know, Um, now that that can be done both on the um, progressive and definitely on the conservative side. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a MAGA Bible out there somewhere. So the Bible is just there to plug in and support people in their political beliefs. Uh, mm-hmm. That is that is on a, on a on a bad ometer on things that are bad. That scores a 29.8, and it only goes up to 10. So if you if you think the Bible is only authoritative when it agrees with your politics, whether it's progressive or conservative, that is really really bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that that's one side of biblical authority where people just want to people pretty much reject it or they just only accept the Bible when it on their ter- on their political terms. But then if you say, look, you know, I'm not interested in just kind of you know propping up my politics. I actually want to live under uh, the Word of God type of thing. Uh, but you got to remember, even that is a little bit more complicated. For example, if you read the patriarchal narratives about, say, Abraham, where Abraham, you know, has you know two wives. Can you read that? And you say, you know what? If having one wife is good, having two must be better. So let's go down to Mattress Barn, get ourselves <laughs> an emperor-sized mattress, uh, go on to um, polygamynow.com, and let's get a plus one to this marriage. Hey, it's good, go. enough for Abra- it's good enough for Abraham. It's good enough for me. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's not going to end well for a number of reasons. First of all, I don't know about you guys, but I have enough trouble keeping one wife happy, uh, <laughs> let alone a second one. Um, 
Uh, and that's that's not that's not how I think we should be reading the uh, scripture. So something can be in scripture in scripture, but that doesn't mean it's uh, prescriptive or it's normative or it should be applied for for today. Uh, similarly, like if you look at the the instructions about how they how they engaged in warfare in you know in, in ancient Israel with nearby tribes and nations. Uh, this this I would say was not ideal. It's not like okay, this is a good way of doing war. But in the context of the ancient Near East where you have you know intertribal violence verging on genocide, okay, uh, in that ugly malevolent evil context god has to lead his people through the sewers of human existence and say this is how you if you get found in this situation this is what you have to do now it's 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 kind of you might say necessary pragmatic but i don't think it's ever treated as ideal so you know i i don't think we should look to the conquest narratives and say, okay, and this is this, and this is how you know we should forget the laws of armed conflict, the Geneva Conventions, and we should fight warfare like they did in ancient Israel, take slaves, that type of a thing. You know, you've got to remember that that is that's given for our instruction, and it was something that happened. But I don't think we take and apply that now. So I would say that is not authoritative or prescriptive for how we live in today's world. So that that's why the, the biblical authority question is a, I, I think a little bit more tricky um, than, than people think of. Of course, the question is which parts of the Bible are prescriptive and which parts are descriptive, you know, and, and the, the good example I always ask my students is I look at the household codes, you know, um, in places like Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 4, you know, um, wives obey your husbands, children your parents, slaves obey your masters, you know, should we be running our household today, a Christian household, according to the, the household code? You know, what can we take away and what do we have to kind of leave um, in the ancient world? I mean, th- those are the big questions you have to ask. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you started running your house like a household code, um, or, or as they did in the ancient world, that could be problematic because, you know, if I was to say to one of my daughters, well, look, I've got a good business associate and um, to... um to um, uh, ink the deal between us and our families. I want you to marry this um, 60-year-old guy. And I'm pretty sure my 16-year-old daughter will be saying, um, uh, no, dad, yeah. <laughs> not doing yeah. that. I mean, yeah, none of us is running a house like that anymore, thank goodness. Um, but back then, that was part of, part of the world. And even the question of slavery, you know, I mean, I don't think you can just swap out slaves for employees. I think that's a little bit of, a little bit of an easy cop out. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to have a world where they have slaves. I mean, yeah, yeah that, that kind of thing. So even the biblical authority thing, um, that requires an element of, um, of interpretation, you know, about how what is and is not applicable from the ancient world, and a little bit of discernment as well, because if you get that wrong, there can be some really bad ethical connotations as well. So, biblical authority, yep, sure, a big believer in it, uh, but don't fall into the temptation of saying the Bible is authoritative because it props up my politics, and you've got to have a bit of discernment to how uh, the Bible in its own world applies to your world right now. And I think what you described uh, also speaks to kind of a reductionist idea that 
some have, which is it's a simple proposition. If it's in the Old Testament, it's old and defunct, and you don't have to obey that, except maybe the Ten Commandments. Uh, but then if it's in the New Testament, everything has changed. So everything on that side of the ledger. And, and what I hear you saying is that um, there are some strange precedents and odd commandments in the New Testament as well. And so the discernment process you know, works across both Testaments. Yeah, it's exactly like in the New Testament, Acts 15, um, the, the Apostolic Council tells Gentiles not to eat meat with blood in it. Now, I don't know whether you two guys have been down to Outback Steakhouse recently <laughs> and you've ordered yourself a Melbourne porterhouse. Yeah, exactly. But you could be you could be faced with the ethical conundrum of do I get it well done, medium or medium rare? Because, I mean, the, the apostle said don't eat meat that, with blood in it. So right. Does that mean you've got to have the well done option? Um, okay, for all you good people out there, let me tell you, if you go to the Outback Steakhouse and order the Melbourne porterhouse, it's okay to have it medium rare because <laughs> the uh, the Apostolic Council, that was kind of, a, I think, a temporary mediating option to kind of assuage some of the concerns of Jewish Christians that the Gentile Christians were going to be a kind of conduit for bringing idolatry into the church. Because you know what Gentiles are like, you know, all that, you know, offering pigs to kind of Zeus and stuff. You don't want that stuff mm -hmm. in the church. So it, yeah. it, was, it was a way of kind of like, you know, assuaging the concerns of Jewish Christians that Gentile Christians were not going to be a way of smuggling idolatry in the church. Just make sure they don't need meat with any blood in it because that's, you know, use and sacrifice and who knows what those dirty Gentiles will do. So that, that was a kind of an interim measure. I don't think it's prescriptive for all time. It's not normative for all time. So eat, eat your Melbourne Porterhouse steak medium red to the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know about you guys. I don't think I've ever been in, to a church service where I was greeted or felt pressured to greet anybody with a holy kiss of any sort. So there's all sorts of stuff in the New Testament. Right? You've never been to Italian churches, Alex. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Guess not. Or South American, South American oh, yeah. churches. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. You need I to travel to, more. Yeah. 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 I, I once got greeted by a South American um, young Christian lady, and I, 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 I just describe it as basically being kind of. Um, assaulted by Jennifer Lopez. That's what it <laughs> felt like. It was just kind of like, hi, my name's and this woman throws her face at me <laughs> and I'm just standing there thinking, what, what's just happened? Do I, yeah. do I need to file a complaint now? What the heck? Right. Right. Uh, oh man. I love that. So, yeah. so you're getting into it a little bit, kind of the um, cultural background between Jews and Gentiles and uh, meat sacrificed idols, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is a good segue into our next question about understanding the world of the Bible, the world that the Bible was born into. You, you make the case. I know John Walton loves saying that the Bible is for us, but it wasn't written to us. Um, we like to say, you know, you're, you're reading somebody else's mail. In a lot of cases, you're reading somebody else's diary, that sort of thing. Um, so this, this is kind of a two-part question. A, why is historical context so crucial? And B, what is, you know, you're an Anglican priest as well. What's what's sort of a realistic expectation for an average Joe or an average Jane who just, uh, you know, they they work at an accounting firm or whatever. They've got kind of your regular life. They don't have time necessarily or, or as much time maybe as you do, Mike, to to dive into ancient texts and, mm. you know, wrestle through what what the world of the Bible was like. What's kind of a realistic expectation for the average churchgoer to to understand ancient historical context? 
Yeah, I think it's uh, it is it is knowing a bit of context is important because everything has a context, doesn't it? Yeah, how yeah. often have you been in an argument and someone quotes you say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa." You're taking my words out of context, yeah. you know, and things have a, a, a context uh, in a literary sense, but also a historical sense as well. I mean, let me give you a good example. Let me give you a good example. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's, you know, talking about women wearing head coverings. And the Greek word there is, is gune. And you translate gune on the context. Does it mean woman, you know, generically, or does it mean wife? And a lot of translations used to translate that that all women should wear head coverings. But one thing we know from Greco-Roman art and I think literature is that head coverings were really only for wives, which is why some Bible translations have kind of changed it from saying women should wear head coverings to wives should wear head coverings. Now, by the way, with wives and head coverings, you know, and how that applies, that's kind of like a separate topic. But I mean, that's how, you know, learning a little bit of um, historical background actually shapes things like Bible translation. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, what is the best word? Is this, is this a generic requirement that all women are expected to wear head coverings? Or is this, as a, or, or was this a way a woman indicates her respectability and her modesty, that type of thing? So yeah, it, it affects, you know, knowing historical background affects things like, you know, Bible translation. Uh, and, you know, knowing some of it does help. But another good example, you know, when Paul tells women to dress modestly, I always thought that was in the sense of not showing too much flesh. So, you know, no plunging necklines, you know, that type of thing, not the, mm-hmm. you know, skirt, you know, below the knees or something, <laughs> you know, whatever whatever was kind of modest. But actually, yeah. as someone pointed out, the modesty there applies not to flesh that you're showing, but the amount of material wealth you're exhibiting. Mm. So it's 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 not about don't don't show too much flesh. It's more like don't flaunt too much bling mm. in in the sense of you know your ostentatious display of your wealth. Mm. Um, so again, knowing a little bit of background helps you um, understand you know things like that. Uh, in terms of what's the average layperson you know, meant to know? I mean, because you know, let's face it, no one no one really has the time to do a PhD in Egyptian archaeology yeah. or to unearth Canaanite religion mm-hmm. or to go or who can spend three years of their life dig, dig, digging up pottery in Ephesus or anything like that. Or not everyone can read the complete works of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Philo, Josephus, and everything like that. Uh, I would say one of the best things you can simply do is get a good study Bible. And there's a whole bunch of good studies of Bibles out there where the scholars have done the hard work for you and kind of explain some of these historical backgrounds that you need to know. Like, you know, what is a Pharisee? Okay. Um, what is a denarius? You know, um, you know what is a, how far is a stadium? You know, that, that, that kind of a thing. So getting yourself a good study Bible uh, or something like, you know, a Bible backgrounds commentary. I know Craig Keane has got a brilliant one. It's sold like a gazillion copies. And the reason it's sold well is because it's useful and you need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so st- stuff like that can really help you. That said, uh, I do think there is something to be said. If you want to get the most out of your Bible, um, you know, doing a little bit of historical reading uh, can be a, a really good idea. You know, so reading uh, certain parts of Josephus, you know, particularly where he's talking about the first century, reading something like the Apocrypha and, and, the, and the books of Maccabees, which kind of fills you in about the intertestamental period, you know, reading some of the apostolic fathers that I alluded to, uh, alluded to before. 
So if you've got a good diet of reading, um, you know, I mean, obviously you read the Bible, but maybe you read a, a novel every now and again as well. Maybe you read something of like a, a crime novel or something, um, whatever your reading schedule is, my advice, add a little bit of reading of ancient classics, you know, read a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, you can pick up a copy in your bookstore for about 10 bucks and probably on Kindle for five bucks. Mm-hmm. And uh, j- just, so just read a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, read Josephus's account of the war of the Jews, the rebellion against Rome around 66 to 70 AD. And when you read that, you'll go, aha, that reminds me of X in the Bible. Or "Mm, that's very interesting because that shows me that what I meant in the Bible may not be quite right because he's using the same language to talk about, you know, God bringing vengeance on the Romans or or something like that. So that's what I would do. Get yourself a good study Bible. Uh, try do a little bit of reading from um, ancient sources in so, so far so far as you can. You, know, you can add some of this kind of stuff into your entertainment options too, right? I mean, Netflix. Yeah. Prime Video isn't all movies. They have good documentaries. Um, yeah, although, and- FYI, I, I don't recommend HBO um, Stories of Rome. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I once that I once did that with some students. Hey, hey, HBO's got this. You know, BBC and HBO got this really good. You know, thing about ancient Rome. Let's all watch that. And I watched the first episode, and oh boy, that was that's not that's not the Roman history I remember. It yeah. was. Um, yeah, to be perfectly frank, it was also what I would call a bit of a soft porn option. Yeah, um, Game of Thrones not, which, version. Yeah, yeah, which is not what I wanted to recommend to students. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, can I say get your documentaries from the Discovery Channel, not from HBO. Yeah. Um, so just a just a bit of advice on that. <laughs> yeah. Someone, so I, I, someone I was... who is. Someone who's prematurely recommended things to students in the past and lived to regret it. Yes, I was not recommending indiscriminate watching of, of uh, you know, movies like 300 or whatever. You know, yeah. there are uh, there needs to be some discernment, but there there's some good stuff out there and including including something that you and nt Wright did together too, right? The New Testament and its world video series. You want to do a yeah. plug for that? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, we've yeah. done we've done two DVD series. One is designed for like seminary students, which takes you through each like book of the, of the New Testament and explains it and you know who wrote it, where it's from, what it's about. But we've also done a, a lay level course uh, called the New Testament You Never Knew, and this is like me and Tom cruising around Jerusalem, Galilee, uh, Rome, Corinth, Athens. Uh, looking around all the sites and talking about uh, you know the New Testament in its world and and introducing people and that that was so much fun that was so much fun and uh, I think that's a terrific series so I mean that's something you want to if you want to get into in terms of a group Bible study I definitely recommend uh, doing that that's great I'll link to that in the show notes for for anybody listening hey let's uh, wrap this up with something that is uh, that's critical, and I think it's kind of the capstone of what you've talked about. You talk about reading the Bible through uh, Jesus as the center of the Bible, um, similar to maybe what the Bible Project guys talk about when they say our mission is to help people experience the Bible as a unified story um, leading to Jesus. So talk to us, Mike, a little bit about why it's crucial to uh, do our hermeneutics through a Jesus lens. 
Yeah, well, I mean, when when in in the Gospel of Luke, Luke twenty four, when the risen Jesus is talking to the travelers on the road to Emmaus, and they're kind of opining that you know they thought Jesus was the one to redeem Israel, and it seems as if they've backed the wrong horse of the apocalypse, so to speak. <laughs> and Jesus chastises them and says, "How slow of heart not to believe all that was written in the pro- in the in the in the um you know in, in Moses, the prophets, the Psalms about the Messiah, how he was going to you know." how he had to suffer then enter his glory. And then he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself had a kind of Christocentric way of reading scripture. Uh, Peter Enns um, talks about a Christotelic way of reading. Now, telos is the word for like goal. So Christ is is the ultimate goal of scripture. So you can read uh, not just the New Testament, but even the Old Testament in such a way that points to Christ. And that can be done in numerous ways. Sometimes there's like, you know, obvious prophecies about a messianic figure, but you can see types or hints or analogies that that point to Christ or explain his ministry. And sometimes this is like forward looking, but also you can go back and read retrospectively and you can see things that uh, types or patterns that remind you of Christ and the nature of his ministry. So that is a big part of Bible reading. Now, the only qualification I want to do that is that I wouldn't make that the only way of reading the Old Testament as if, you know, every time you read something, from Isaiah or Jonah, it's got to kind of take you to John 3.16 or something like that. Um, the, the, the danger is that we just kind of, you know, in a real clumsy or cheesy way, kind of what I would say, Jesify um, everything we read in the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament tells you a lot about the person and nature of God. Uh, there's some great wisdom for Christian living. I mean, so the example I leave, you know, in the story of David and Bathsheba, you know, obviously, you know, this reminds us that we've got a new David who's coming, who's not going to have all the faults and the foibles of, you know, the original David. We know we've, we've got a new, our hope is set on, on a new, a new son of David who's coming. But the other thing I would say is don't commit murder and don't commit sexual violence. I mean, that's a, that's another takeaway from the story as well. Not just, but don't worry, we've got a new David who's coming. Uh, there, there is a real morality tale. Uh, if you look at the life of David, both in a in series of things to do and things you should absolutely never do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, re- read the Old Testament in a Jesus-centered way, uh, but don't just collapse everything into a kind of ge- uh, really cheesily Jesifying everything that you read. Yeah, I love that. And we've got to wrap it up here. You've been extremely generous with your time and we're, we're grateful for that. Again, uh, Michael's book is about seven things that he wishes Christians knew about the Bible. We've touched on a handful uh, here. Michael, do you have anything, just last comments, anything to add that we've missed that you want to make sure it gets across or what are you thinking? Uh, well, the only thing I'm thinking of, you know, is the Bible is a great book. Uh, take up and read. It's it's uh, the book that changes many people's lives. And if, when you come across something in the Bible that's tricky or difficult, remember that is a great opportunity to increase the depth of your learning and your, your love of God. And, and any question you have, uh, you remember, you're probably not the first person who's come up with that particular question about that tricky text. And you get to join the community of saints of past, present and future who themselves have wrestled with the word of God and how it brings hope, knowledge and love to them. Mm-hmm. 
That's a great, great note to end on. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Mike. It's been a lot of fun. I think this is maybe the most we've laughed during a podcast. We've been doing it for about a year here, and uh, this was definitely a, a fun one for us. Yeah, well, I have been told I am the Conan O'Brien of biblical studies. <laughs> Um, or Conan O'Brien slash Hugh Jackman of biblical studies. Oh, there you go. I, sh- I should have introduced uh, I ha- you that way. Although I have to say I'm about a foot shorter than Conan O'Brien. I'm kind of... <laughs> Aren't if we Conan all? O'Brien, if Conan O'Brien was a jockey, um, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what I I would be more like. Perfect. You're going to you're gonna have to post a picture now, Alex. Everybody's wondering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who's Conan O'Brien? Yeah. 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 Well, uh, well, we always love it when we f- can find somebody that has the scholarly pedigree, but then communicate it in a down-to-earth, uh, digestible way for for average lay people. And so, we're grateful to to have you on the podcast today. Again, to our listeners, definitely we would recommend checking out Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible" by uh, by Dr. Michael Bird. Available, I assume, everywhere books are sold: Amazon, Zondervan, etc. And uh, and. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one.